Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we're going to talk about the giving of the Torah. It's, uh, it's Parshish Yisram, which is just an, an amazing thing in and of itself. Um, you know, God created the entire world, and all of us are God's children. Um, Jew, non-Jew, all of us are God's children. And um, the Jewish people have a, a very particular role to play in creation, but, um, but everyone has a role to play in creation. And one of the most wonderful illustrations of how much uh, the Torah and, and Judaism and Hashem himself honors all the people of the world is that the very fact that the, the giving of the Torah, which is the central moment in the, in the creation of, of humanity, um, is named after someone who wasn't Jewish and who came to Judaism. Yisro came to Judaism. He was uh, Moshe's father-in-law and... Um, and he, you know, was someone who was known for checking out every religion under the sun and, and then arriving ultimately at the truth of Torah. So, so it's, a, it's a beautiful covet, it's a beautiful honor that the giving of the Torah, which if you're going to name it after anyone, you would name it after Moshe. If you asked a hundred people, you know, on the street, who should we name the portion of the giving of the Torah to Moshe Rabbeinu on Mount Sinai after? You know, you'd get a hundred answers. Everyone would say Moshe. So, and yet Hashem, who knows better, says Yisra, you know, and, and this, is, this is, again, just a, um, a validation and a, a very pointed way, I think, um, on, on, on certainly on one level, that Hashem is, is, is reminding us, see, that, that every single person, whether Jewish or non-Jewish, has a share in the Torah and has mitzvahs to do in the Torah. So, so remember... Our tradition is that the Torah existed before the world was created, that God looked into the Torah and, and made the world. So if that's the case, if the whole world is made out of Torah, and again, we're always emphasizing it, that the Torah is not a book, that the Torah is actually the, the, the building blocks of creation. It's actually the, the fabric of reality itself. That when you understand that, then, then, you, then you have to understand that every person in the world um, whether Jewish or non-Jewish, has to have a share in the Torah and has to have mitzvahs to do in the Torah. It's just logical, because the, the other stuff that we're saying doesn't make sense unless that's also true. And in fact, we know that there's something called the Sheva Mitzvahs B'nai Noach, the seven universal mitzvahs that everyone is obligated in. So, so, so one shouldn't think that, oh, Jewish people have mitzvot and, and things to do in the Torah, but non-Jewish people don't, you know, they have their own religion, and they, they don't have a share in the Torah or an association with the Torah. That would be a fundamental um, uh, misconception. There, the, the Torah has a very wide, expansive understanding of creation, and everyone participates in it. And again, this is hinted at very beautifully in the fact that the portion of the giving of the Torah itself is named after someone who wasn't Jewish, who became Jewish. So, so, so the universalistic message of it. Okay, that, that's point number one. A nice little just like kind of side point, you know, is that if you actually look at, at the word Yisrael, it's very appropriate that it begins with the letter Yud, which is the number 10. You know, because the whole sort of like um, DNA of creation on a spiritual level is that Hashem created the ten spherot, and and that and that Hashem um, created uh, the world from the um, the ten utterances, 
And that when Hashem spoke at Har Sinai, what came down were the Aseris Adibros, also ten. So all these tens which are focusing in on the fundamental DNA of the nature of the entire world are hinted at at the first letter of the portion of the giving of the Torah. It's beginning with the letter Yud. And then again, you see another reference. You see another reference to the universalistic nature of Torah. Because what's the next three letters after after the Yud of Yisro? Is Rus. <laughs> right? If you rearrange them, it's Resh, Vav, uh, Tav. Rus, who is Ruth? Ruth is the great-grandmother of David HaMelech. She's someone who wasn't Jewish, who became Jewish, and the messianic line of Torah is traced through Ruth. So in other words, when, as Rabbi Shlomo explained to me one time, when Mashiach comes, Mashiach is going to repre- be representing not just the Jewish people. Mashiach is going to be representing all of humanity. And as such, his roots, his lineage, has to draw from all of humanity. So he's descended from Jews, Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, David, Amelech, all the rest, right? But he'll also have as part of his lineage that which incorporates all of the rest of humanity as well. And that's sort of like, most sort of like symbolized by, by Rus, who um, wasn't Jewish and who becomes Jewish. So again, it's just very cool that Yisro, like just the word itself for the giving of the Torah, it's like, incorporating all these different great personages and touching on all these um, amazing uh, different little, um, you know, signposts of, of the nature of creation itself. Okay. Now, now let's go a little bit further. I heard Rabbi Tzvi Freeman say something uh, yesterday that really resonated with me. He said, if you were to come up to um, a person after they experienced the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, Right? Like, and let's just kind of like do a quick refresher course of what that was like for a moment to the extent that we can say it. So we know that the, that the mountain shook. We know that, the, that there was fire on the mountain. We know that there was thunder and lightning. We know that, the, that Mount Sinai in the middle of the desert broke out in flowers. We know that there was a shofar blast, and you know when a human being blows the shofar, it gets louder, and then you run out of air, it gets softer. The shofar blast just got louder and louder and louder and louder and louder and louder, showing that it wasn't like, you know, coming from a, a human place, but it was coming from a divine place. It says, Hashem spoke, and our souls flew out of our bodies, and then Hashem put them back in. And then Hashem spoke again, and our souls flew out of our bodies again. So we had to be actually brought back from the dead, resurrected twice, right? With this special dew that's going to be used at the end of days to revive all of the dead, to chiasamesim, the revival of the dead in the end of days. That's one of the core beliefs of Judaism, by the way, you know? By the way, you should know, it says in the beginning of Masechta Avodah Zorah, that everyone who was mentioned, all the Tanayim who were mentioned in the... Uh, in the Talmud, all the sages knew how to resurrect the dead. So, so resurrecting the dead was no big deal for us. We don't consider that a very big deal. And it says later on in, uh, you know, but, you know, famously, the Katskarebi says, you know, it's a very big miracle to resurrect the dead, but it's an even bigger miracle to resurrect the living, right? <laughs> There's a, a lot of depth in that. That's like one of those things you can think about for the rest of your life. But anyway, that aside, um, 
you know, sometimes we have trouble like imagining what what is that. But but the Gemara in Sanhedrin says something like it, it talks about it quite a bit. But it gives one logical argument that I, I think is 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 quite special. So let me just share it now. Then we'll get back to the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. Is that is that what is the greater accomplishment to create something out of nothing or to create something out of something? So obviously, to create something out of nothing is much bigger. So when someone is born. They've been created out of nothing, right? God just takes, you know, you know, a few ingredients and he, he turns it into life, right? So that's, turns it into you. So that, that's, now you're here, right? Where'd you come from, right? You weren't here, now you're here. This is amazing. Now, once a person passes away, right? We should all live long. Then to bring the person back to life, that's just creating something out of something because you're already here. So if you think about it, it's a much less miraculous thing to bring someone out of life than to create someone to begin with. You understand? So in other words, God has already done the far greater miracle by bringing you into the world right now. That, that's, that's the primary miracle. Then, okay, he wants to bring you back, he brings you back. That's not a big deal. So the, 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 the Gemara is just, it's just like trying to make us aware of sort of like the... the um, the order of the levels, the magnitude of miracles that are happening. And resurrection is actually a much lesser miracle than birth itself. Okay, so God brings us back to life a second time, and then Moshe goes and he gets uh, the rest of the commandments. Then, very importantly, it says that, um, it says that there was, you know, thunder and lightning, and that we have this experience, uh, it's a fancy word, a fun word to know, uh, synesthesia, right? We heard colors and we saw sounds. So this is like, wow, you know, we heard colors, we saw sounds. This is a complete sort of out-of-body, expansive experience. And then it goes further. It says that Hashem instilled with, uh, within us a belief in Moshe, and in Hashem, in the validity, the, the um, truth of the Torah for all times. How did he do it? He allowed us to hear God speaking to Moshe. Now, this is an amazing thing. It's not just God did all these amazing things, and then we said, okay, this is, this is good. It's coming from a good source. And then, and then we trust that Moshe is going to deliver to us what he heard from the very real God. No, it's more than that. God allowed all of us to be present for the conversation that took place between God and Moshe. We heard that. We heard everything Moshe heard. See, that's, that's an amazing thing because it created, it created our faith in Moshe as the true conveyor of God's will for all time. Because everything Moshe said, we heard God say to Moshe. See, this is very, very important. And, and to compound this further, we also have to realize that we had approximately two and a half million witnesses there. Now this is like an absurdly bold claim for any religion to make. No religion would ever dare make such a statement like this unless it's true, because it's so easy to disprove. Every other major religion in the monotheistic path has one <coughs> prophet who is, 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 says basically, I got the word, now you go and trust me. 
only Torah makes the claim that every single person there was a prophet and participated in the revelation of Hashem's will. This is, this is unprecedented. And in fact, Christianity and Islam, the two other major monotheistic paths in the world, both say that the revelation at Mount Sinai 100% happened. In fact, they base their religions on the fact that God gave the Torah to the Jewish people at Mount Sinai. So in the, in the ancient world itself, and Islam is actually a fairly recent religion, I don't, it's basically from the year 800. So that's like, um, I don't know, what, 15 to 1300 years old? That's, you know, in world history, that's, that's pretty recent. So, so all of them base, it on, base their religions on the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. So that, that in itself is an amazing thing. But let's get back to what uh, Rabbi Freeman said. He said, if you left this experience, now imagine your soul is flying out of your body, you're being resurrected, you're hearing, like, there's this earthquake, there's this chauffeur, there's thunder and lightning, you're hearing colors, you're seeing, you know, you're seeing sounds, right? What would you say if I, like, came up to you after that experience, and I just missed it, right? I was, you know, I couldn't find parking, right? So it's like, <laughs> oh, man, I missed it, you know? So... I say to you, what was it like? Would you say, oh, well, you know, you know, well, let me just, uh, I, can, I can sum it up real fast. God said, don't kill, don't steal. Right? Don't look at another man's wife. Right? Would you, it, do you think that's what you would report to the person who just missed it? Or would you, you would talk about this unbelievable experience. That's the key word. This experiential thing that you went through that was like, like, like you'll be talking, well, we are in fact talking about it and will till the end of time. It's this experiential thing. And, 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 and I want to go further in that direction right now. Because you see, If I understand the Ramban correctly, one of the um, things that happened when we ate from the tree of knowledge is that our minds got separated from our hearts. And Western civilization, Western civilization classically speaking, for the most part, has sort of taken the, the, the mind and run with it. They've taken that ball and, and run with it. And as feel as though, you know, you can actually kind of treat that separately, rationality separately, as opposed to life's experiential, you know, approach, and that you can divorce the mind from it and, dis and, and discuss it just from the intellectual point of view. And, and because the mind is so great, which it is, that will actually encompass everything. And therefore, you're really not leaving an anything out. And yet, that, that, I think, is fundamentally flawed, that approach. And in fact, the Sefer Yetzirah breaks down all of reality into three fundamental parts. Time, space, okay, science says that too, time and space, very good. But they add a third category, and soul. Time, space, and soul. And without that macrocosmic view, you can't ultimately discuss truth. And, and so... That's why I think it's such a strong statement 
such a beautiful thing that Rabbi Freeman is saying is that if you were to leave the Mount Sinai experience and someone were to discuss it with you, you probably wouldn't be saying, yeah, God said, you know, keep the Sabbath on your parents, right? Don't look at someone else's property and want to take it from them. They would be saying, whoa, you know, like they wouldn't even have words, right? Because it was the experiential thing. It's that thing that is just beyond, 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 beyond. You know, someone, I heard someone speak one time and um, they were, they were basically talking about just like the greatness of like, like the example, they were talking about the Shabbos table, you know, the, just this, this sort of like this energy epicenter, you know, which the Shabbos table is, you know, they were saying that, you know, you have PhDs who like, you could talk to them, you know, about proofs and arguments, this, that, and the other thing from now till the end. Right. And, and they're, they're going to hold their place and, you know, this is how I see it. That's what it is. But they experience a Shabbos and they have some chicken soup and they're like, yeah, I'm on board. When's next Shabbos? When's candle lighting? You know? And it's sort of like, wait a second, you're telling me like some chicken soup did it? But I like, you know, I had like a stack of books here and I was like pointing you to all these things and that didn't do it? Yeah, that did do it. Why? Because it gets back to this idea that it's this experiential thing. It's this experiential thing. And, and that the experiential thing is this, this thing that is combining the mind and the heart. That that's, that's what's happening and the soul and time and space. And you're getting this macrocosmic view of the truth that the mind itself can't grasp. And that sometimes that the, that the mind actually at a certain point will handicap you. You know, we were just watching this movie, um, The Theory of Everything. And, um, you know, my wife is so funny. She, she was talking to, we were with uh, my uh, uh, daughter, who's, I guess, 16 now, and her, her best friend, who's also 16. And, and, and my wife often says that, you know, she's pointing to the Stephen Hawking's character and saying, you see, that, you don't want to marry a genius. <laughs> One step below. That's, that's what you want. <laughs> Because there, there comes a certain point where someone who's a quote-unquote genius, that that actually is a handicap, you know? You wouldn't think it. I mean, it's so, it's so counterintuitive. But that level of genius actually is a handicap. And, and someone actually can be too smart for their own good. And, um, you know, we just had Tubishvat, and there's a very interesting discussion about what was the... What was the fruit from the tree of knowledge? And there are different opinions that are given, okay? And um, it's actually very interesting to go through the different opinions. One of them is that it was wheat, that way back in the day, that wheat actually came from a tree and nature sort of shifted, evolved, however you want to say it now. We get wheat a different way, but that, that, that wheat actually corresponds to the mind because it says that when a child is able to digest wheat, he's able to call his parents by name, right? He's able to, so the, so it's this intellectual process. Then there's a, there's an opinion that it was actually a fig 
Because why? Well, Rashi says this because it says when they covered themselves, when they got self-conscious about their bodies after they ate from the tree of knowledge, they, they covered their, their bodies with a fig leaf. So where did they get the fig leaf from? From a fig tree. So that means that the fruit was a fig. You know, it's fairly straightforward, you know, according to Rashi. And then the other, um, one of the other opinions is that um, it actually was, let's see, what did I say? A fig, wheat, and, why am I? Grapes, yeah. That it, that it, was, that it was actually the grape, right? So the grape, that's all about, um, the, the, what do you make from grapes? You make, you make wine, you know? And uh, so, so uh, I'm I'm racing through things because th- this is working on so many different levels. But I, I just want to just make the point clearly that that there are three fundamental sort of like primal kind of things that can kind of mess you up. Okay. And that corresponds to these three fruits. This is the maral now. The shalaha kodesh. So what is it? Thought. You're too smart for God, right? That's kind of what we've been talking about now. That's that correlates with it being the wheat. See, the maral is saying that basically, when it's talking about the different fruits, it's not really just talking about the different fruits. What's the fruits? The real conversation is what instinct within us went wrong. So if you say wheat, that means that our intellect went over the rails, right? We thought we were too smart, right? And you see this all the time where, where like, I think I, I mentioned it to you before, my friend um, Greg Daniel said it to me, you know, before I was observant, you know, early on and made a big impact on me. He said, can an ant outthink a man? I was like, no. So he said, so how can man outthink God? See, God, who's infinite, creates our finite brains, and then we have the chutzpah, the arrogance, to use our finite brains to tell the infinite one what he can and can't do. What he can, what he is and isn't capable of. You see how that's a complete misappropriation of intellect. So that's the idea that it was weak. Then you have this idea of the fig, right? You see, the shalah hakodesh, one of our greatest rabbis, says that we were told to work the garden. The word for work is amal, ayin mem lamed. Okay? So he says that what that stands for is the, the letter ayin stands for your eye. Okay? So we have to fix our eyes. That, that's kind of what went wrong. You know, we were looking after things that weren't ours. Okay? You know, it, it said that the eating from the tree of knowledge was, was basically a level of theft. And, and very interestingly, the Parsha that we read right after Parsha's Yisro is Parsha's Mishpatim. And it begins with a series of laws. It's one of the most jam-packed, mitzvah-filled Parshas in the whole Torah. What's the very first uh, law that we get about the Hebrew slave? Okay? Now, the, it wasn't slavery like we knew it in the South, in the United States. Slavery in the Torah, as it's talked about, was a whole different institution. It was basically like a welfare halfway house, where if someone 
didn't have money to pay their debts, or if they had stolen, then they got into this sort of like type of relationship in order to work off their debts, basically. But it also says that if you have a master and a slave, quote unquote, an evid, let's use the word evid instead of slave. If you have a master and an evid, and, and the master only has one pillow, the evid gets it. Right? And it also says in another place that one who takes on a slave takes on a master. So the level of treatment that the person got was not, don't, don't, don't get confused with the English. You know, when you hear the word slave, there wasn't that type of institution, okay? So, so at the beginning of Parsha's Mishpat team, it's talking about someone who becomes, you know, an Evid because he stole and he wasn't able to repay. So now you say to me, well, wait a second. We just got the Torah at Mount Sinai with the most divine pyrotechnics in the entire world. And you're telling me that the first thing we're learning in like the Parsha, like right afterwards, is like someone who stole who can't repay. Like, and it's like so like nitty gritty civil law after like this, like, wow, this is expansive type of take, right? Like, what's the connection? So I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of the Zohar that basically God immediately is talking about fixing the very first mistake in the Garden of Eden. Because when we took from the tree of knowledge, it was theft. We were stealing. Right? I got the chills, you know? And that's why that's the first law that's being addressed. Right? Because it's already, now that we have the Torah, we can now start to fix the world again. It's an amazing, amazing correlation there. So, so you have amal. Remember, the Shalah says, what is this word amal, which means to work? Because we were told that we have to work the Garden of Eden. Right? And remember, I always make this point. It's, a, I think, a very essential point. If you want to understand this world, if you want to understand your life, you have to understand this point. A lot of people think the Garden of Eden was like the ultimate spa, and then we messed it up, and we're still trying to get out of the hole that we dug for ourselves. It's not true. It's not true. Before, I emphasize that very strongly, before we ate from the tree of knowledge, and, and messed everything up. Before we ate from it, we had a commandment to work and guard the garden. In other words, we had a job to do at the very beginning of creation. So don't think that the whole thing was a vacation thing and then we messed it up. It wasn't. The whole thing was a work thing. We have work to do in this world. And this is something that, you know, people have cognitive dissonance, you know, in terms of understanding their lives in, 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 in this time in history in America especially, where it seems like the whole, everything is basically vacation-oriented. You know what I mean? Everything is about retiring. Everything is about not working. And that if you have to work, you're a sucker. You're the ultimate sucker. Right? But this is a complete distortion of what we're supposed to do here and what this world is. We're supposed to work, and we're supposed to fix it. You understand? It, didn't, it wasn't supposed to go on for thousands of years, right? And it can end any day. But there's a work ethic that's being put down. So from the very outset, okay, good. So then let's, let's go back to this. So Amal is that commandment for, for Adam to work in the Garden of Eden. So what does Amal stand for? 
What work did he have to do? So this is what the Shalah is saying. Ayin mem um, lamed. Ayin is your eye. We have to fix our eyes. Right? Mem is mila. That's sexuality. We have to fix our sexuality. We have to harness it properly. Lamed is lashon. We have to, bless you, we have to fix our speech. Bless you. We have to fix our, our, our speech as well. So these are the three sort of like primary things. And there's a fruit which correlates with each one of these approaches. Because the debate is, which was that, which of those three instincts are the one, is the one that derailed us? And that's what they're arguing about when they're arguing about the fruit. That's the Mara, okay? So, so, so according to the, the eye, that would be the grape. According to the Mila, the Mem, that would be the fig, right? Because that's what we covered ourselves with, the fig tree, right? According to the, um, to the, to the Lamed speech, that would be um, the wheat. Because it says that when you eat the wheat, then you're able to call out for your, your mother and father. Right? That would be the Lushen. Okay. So, so let's get back to let's get back to Mount Sinai. And to understand this experiential thing. And um, you see, the, the, the mind and the heart interact in a in a very interesting way. And I think a lot of times we don't sufficiently respect the um, our emotionality and how our emotionality affects and impacts our intelligence. And what is the actual causal relationship? What is the actual cause and effect between the mind and the emotions? So I want to just give you an example from my life from, uh, from, um, from, from writing, okay? And I've noticed something um, in note sessions on, on scripts that I've had over my career. You see... A lot of times, you have, uh, like, an executive will say, like, they'll read a joke, say, and they'll go, you know what, um, that, that joke, take out that joke from the script, it doesn't work, um, uh, because, and then they'll give you an example, they'll give you an explanation why um, it doesn't make any sense, right? It sort of violates either the, what they understand the character to be, the character wouldn't make a joke like that, or, um, or, or other reasons, Okay. Then you'll have other instances where you'll have a joke that will be exactly the same as that joke. It's obviously a different joke, different script, different thing. And they'll go, love that. Right? But it violated the exact same rules as the first one did. But this one they love, that one you've got to take out. And can I tell you why? So that sounds, wow, that's an incredible contradiction. Why would that be? The answer is because they didn't laugh at the first one they did laugh at the second one. <laughs> it's as simple as that. The second joke they liked, so okay, so the character wouldn't say, that's what makes it funny. That's why we like it, because it was so surprising, right? You know, I, I, my son told me a joke this morning that I, I'm, I know I'm not going to tell it well, but it was so good that I'll just try. So this was from The Office, okay? So, so it's the, the Steve Carroll, uh, you know, the, the, the head of this office, hates the HR guy, you know, the human relations guy, hates him, hates him, hates him, okay? And, and he's trying to describe how much he hates him. And he says that um, if you put him in a room with 
Hitler and Osama bin Laden, right? And this HR guy. And you gave me a gun with two bullets. I'd shoot the HR guy twice. <laughs> I'm sure the joke was written much better than I just told it. But anyway, um, why is that, just from a comedy writing standpoint, that, that's a fantastic joke. Why is it so good? Why is it so good? Because the whole essence, the whole, the whole essence of laughter is you're thinking one way and then all of a sudden your mind like, you know, turns, you know, in an instant, 180 degrees in the other direction. And then that, that, that sort of like, that surprise causes laughter. You know, you're thinking, okay, he's got two bullets and, you know, all, all this is happening. You're not even aware of how fast you're thinking. Okay, one of them is definitely going to Hitler, Yamakshima, right? That's, that's not even a question. Then who's the other one going to marry? You don't think he's going to shoot that guy, the least likely guy, twice. You're never expecting that in a million years. So that, that causes laughter, right? So what I'm trying to tell you is, is or, or, or the example that I'm, I'm trying to give, is that when the person laughs, then then everything is okay. So, so, so in other words, I'm trying to explore on, on just one level the, the, the relationship between the mind and the emotions. And what, what, I'm, what I'm trying to suggest is that the, um, one's emotions lead how one thinks to a much greater extent than what we give it credit for. Okay? And so... And so um, so we have to be aware of that, you know. Why do you get away? Why does this guy get away with with that, you know? And the answer is because you like that guy. Why does this guy like do the exact same wrong things and you give him a hard time? You know why? Because I don't like the guy. They, they, they may not express it, but that's that's what's going on. You see. So so the the emotions dictate the heart. Uh, rather, the emotions often dictate and lead the mind, right? So, so this is this is sort of the the the, the, the truth of of the human condition, and this is why, again, to return back to Mount Sinai, why it's so compelling and interesting that the experience at Mount Sinai was this very experiential, right, emotional incredible experience because that is the truth of the person themselves being expressed which is not just oh yeah yeah god told us not to do this and to do that right it's so much greater than that it's so much greater than that you know i i, I mentioned the, the 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 shabbos table and um how someone can have just you know just soak in the vibes and have some soup or whatever it is and all of a sudden now now all of a sudden they don't have the arguments that they had before, because now they like it. Now, now they're in this good place. Now they're evaluating it from a completely different perspective. You know, I heard Reb Shlomo say one time, he was telling the story, it's in uh, the story Moshele the Ganif, one of the great, great stories, if you can, if you can get it. And by the way, I, I uh, highly recommend, you know, one of the greatest things that you can have I really mean it. One of the single greatest things you can possess, in my opinion, is you can go online and, and it's, it's, it's called um, Shlomo Karlbach's Greatest Stories, right? And it's a four CD collection. And um, man, this is a treasure. 
because this is experiential Judaism, at, I think, at its greatest. And what's so amazing is you, you can have the best of Reb Shlomo, even though he's not in this world anymore. You can have re- a real authentic Reb Shlomo experience just from listening to the, these uh, story CDs. And uh, I, 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 I highly recommend it. This story, Moshe the, the Ganif, Moshe the Thief, is an amazing is an amazing story, and it <clears throat> really reminds me of Reb Shlomo himself. But anyway, in it, he he talks about how this person who was a thief. I'm I'm really not even attempting to tell the story. I'm just making a point at the end of it. How this person who was a thief becomes a very great tzaddik, and and he he pauses to say, so why had he been a thief then, and what about all of us who aren't great tzaddikim. So what, 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 what was the turning point? He says someone who, someone who isn't on board, let's say. You know why? Because that person hasn't been touched yet. That's what it all boils down to. Once they have that positive experience, then they think about everything completely differently. That's what it is. That's what it is. And if you want to reach out to someone else, you have to touch them. I mean, I'm talking about on an emotional level, you know? Their their heart has to be open. Once the heart is open, the mind follows. That's that's what it is. That's what it is. Someone called me up and kind of a very... um, Strange call, I got it out of the blue, and they, they were telling me a very long, very complicated story, and, and they really were desperate to make an impact, you know, uh, Jewishly on, on someone. And they were like, what, what class in town should I send them to? You know, and they, and, or what book should I learn with them? And, and I said, well, how about how about this? And they gave me all these different options. They had been thinking about it for, you know, and I could do the Ramchal with them and this and that. And, and I said, well, when's the last time you saw this person? I said, well, I don't know. And I said, well, when's the last time you had lunch with this person? I said, well, I don't know. A bunch of, I said, why don't you just be their friend, <laughs> you know? Why you just have lunch with them, be their friends? When's, when's the last time you did something nice for them? You know, because that's, how about, how about actually loving them first? You know, you want to you wanna make some sort of impression on them? That's going to do more than anything else, you know? And the, he, his, like, I, I heard his jaw drop on the other end of the phone, <laughs> you know? And he said, I've talked to so many rabbis, no one said that to me. <laughs> You know, it's, when you hear it, it sounds, as we say, push it, simple, you know? And yet, because it's so much more than the mind. Again, when, when the person left Mount Sinai, I promise you, if you ask them what they experienced, they, didn't, they wouldn't give you like a five-minute summary of the, of the Ten Commandments. I promise you. I promise you that didn't happen. And why did God do it that way to begin with? 
God didn't have to do it that way to begin with. Why did he do it that way to begin with? In order to show us that there's so much more to this world than that which we can see with our eyes. There's 620 letters in, in, in uh, maybe it's 620 words. I don't know. I always get confused. Whatever it is. It's 620 of the, uh, of the Aseris Adibros, the, the, ten, the ten sayings, what we call the Ten Commandments, but that's not how we say it in Hebrew. We say this ten sayings, right? And uh, actually, the experts say there were many more than Ten Commandments. And in fact, all 613 commands were actually included in those Ten Sayings. Um, 620 is a very key word, because 620 is the gematria of the word Keter. Keter means crown. Now, if you visualize it, a crown sits above the head. In other words, it's above the rational mind, above the finite intelligence of a human being. So that's a very evocative, a very compelling correlation that's being made, this 620, right? Because it's also showing us that, that the world itself is more than we can comprehend with just our minds, right? That's the keter, that's the crown of Torah. That's, that's what's being communicated to us through that that correlation, right? It's beyond. It's beyond, beyond. I'll just maybe I'll take a stab at this. And uh, if you have, if you have a pen, I have a chart that I'm going to show right now. But if you have a pen, I would recommend you writing down these letters because if you see it, it will sound way more simple than if you hear it. But I'm going to do my best to describe it as well. Okay. One of the very compelling. Um, uh, insights. Remember, we say that the Torah is operating on an infinite number of levels, okay? And one of them is mathematical, right? We, the language of math. Math is a beautiful language. In fact, I just saw a study that, that pure math, people who work in pure math, when they see an equation, the, sight, the part of their brain that lights up is the same as when they look at a piece of art, right? So there's a there's a beauty and an elegance to mathematics, and it's one of the languages of creation. So when we talk about gematria, we're not like, you know, putting like a, a cone-shaped hat on our heads and being like, you know, numerologists, you know, God forbid. That's not what's going on here when we're talking about numbers. We're just looking at one of the infinite levels of the Torah, the language of mathematics. And the Torah should correlate on that, on that level as well, if it's true, which it is. So, so one of the beautiful gematrias, numerical correlations, is that the word Sinai is also the word Sulam. It's the same gematria, okay? And that's, uh, which is, uh, I guess, 90 and, and 40, 130. So, so, so Sinai and Sulam, Sulam is a ladder. So that's, that's great, because what was, what was Sinai? It was a ladder connecting heaven and earth. What's the Torah? The Torah is, is, is that ladder that we climb up and we're able to go into different dimensions, right? While we're still here, which is super cool. Now, I'll tell you, before we get into this uh, 
go further into that correlation between ladder and Sinai, Sulam and Sinai, I just want to mention a, uh, a Torah from the Katzka Rebbe. See, one of the great moments of the Jewish people is when we said, Na which is that we will do and we will hear. Normally speaking, if you say to, um, um, normally you want to hear what's being asked for, of you, and then you'll do it. Like, I always believe that one of the beautiful things is if you go up to a person and you say to them, can I ask you a favor? And they say yes, that means they love you. Right? Because most people, 99% of people, if you say, can I ask you a favor? They'll say, what? <laughs> like, you know, like, I want to know what, I'm, what am I getting myself into here, you know? I'm not saying yes, I'm saying what, you know? <laughs> so, I'll tell you something. I, I told that to someone the other day, and they said something beautiful back to me. They said, you know something, um, how do you know when they're saying yes, that they're not saying, yes, what do you want? <laughs> and how do you know when they say what, they're not saying, what can I do for you? <laughs> so I really like that. That was almost like Gomorrah, like logic going back and forth, you know? So, um, so anyway, that, that being said, but, but the normal order of things is first to hear and then to do. But we said to God, we love you so much, we know you're so good that w- yeah, whatever you want us to do, we're going to do it and then we'll hear it. So it was Naseh Venishma, we're going to do and then we'll hear it. So the Kutzka Rebbe says, this is like climbing a ladder. That first you do something, right? And then that experience brings you to a higher level, like you're climbing a ladder. So Naseh, first you do something. Now you're on a higher level. Now you're going to hear God's voice even better. And then you hear, and then you do, and you climb another level. And now you're even closer to heaven, so to speak, so you can hear even better the will of God. So that's, that's kind of another ladder Sinai um, correlation there. That's from the Kutzka Rebbe. So now I'm going to take a stab at this. This is from Rav Yitzhak Isaac Haver, right, in the Or Torah, his commentary on Milo Satora. And he says that Sulam, if you take the word Sulam, and um, you spell out each of the letters of Sulam, right? Remember, Sulam means ladder, and we're connecting it to Sinai, okay? That... That the Samech of Sulam, if you, if you spell out the, the letter Samech, you get Samech Mem Chav, right? That's how you spell Samech. And then if you take the Lamed, the next letter of Sulam, and you spell out the word Lamed, or spell out the letter Lamed, it's Lamed Mem Dalet. That spells Lamed. And then if you take the Mem of Sulam, and you spell out the, the, the word Mem, it's Mem Mem. Okay? So now this is a type of... Um, sort of um, deprobing of words that's called melui, that means the filling, that means the inside, okay? So now what we're going to do is we're going to look at not just the first letters, the samich and, uh, and the lamid and the, and the mem of sulam, but we're going to look at the remaining letters of actually what fills these letters, how do you spell these letters? So what you find here is, and again, if you were spelling this out, you'll see it very, very clearly, Um, I'm pointing to a chart right now. What what you see is that the first letter under Samech Laman Mem for Sulam is Mem Mem Mem. There are three Mems. And those three Mems describe the Sinai experience. Mem is the number 40. Moshe was on Har Sinai for three periods of 40 days each. The first one from Shavuos to 
the 17th of Tammuz, right, when, he, when we worship the golden calf and the, the tablets get smashed, the second 40-day period, when, we're, when he prays for our forgiveness, also on Mount Sinai, and the third 40-day period, starting in Rosh Chodesh Elul, when he gets the second tablets and he comes down on Yom Kippur, the first Yom Kippur, okay, and the sin of the golden calf is, is forgiven. So, so in Sulam, the, the inner workings of Sulam, which means ladder, you see a complete description of the Sinai experience. Now, there are two letters left over, which is Chaf and Dalud, which adds up to 24. And in Tanakh, in the canonized books of the Torah, there are 24 books. So what did we get at Mount Sinai? The entirety of the Torah. And this is all expressed in this correlation between ladder and Sinai. So, again, just how deep every, every aspect of, of describing uh, Mount Sinai is. Now, I'll just tell you one more teaching, and maybe we'll uh, wrap it up. Um, then maybe I'll tell you a, a, a story. Um, but uh, this, um, this, this teaching is from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, and he said that the, 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 the rabbis explain that when Hashem spoke at Mount Sinai, that there was no echo, right? There was no echo. So why? why? Why is that? What does that mean exactly? What's that coming to teach? So, so the Lubavitcher Rebbe explains the, the physics of an echo, that when you, when, how do you make an echo? The sound waves from your mouth bounce off of something, and that's what causes an echo. In other words, the sound waves hit something that aren't the sound waves. So it hits something other than itself. And that's what causes the echo. So why was there no echo at Mount Sinai? Because God fills the entire world. There's no aspect of the world, of all of creation, that isn't filled with godliness. So what are the sound waves going to bounce off in order to make an echo? The whole world is filled with God. You hear so, so, so that's, that's, that's what it means. This is another amazing, amazing understanding of the oneness of God. Another thing, just because I can't talk about Harsinai and not mention this teaching because it's one of my favorites, I heard from Reb Shlomo that, you know, there, there are many different sort of understandings of what God actually spoke at, at, at Mount Sinai. Um, one, one opinion is that, he, um, that Hashem just said the first two commandments, Okay and that the, the rest were spoken to Moshe, but that we all heard them, right? Or Moshe said them, however you want to understand them. But in this opinion, which is in the Gomorrah, God spoke the first two commandments. And one of the um, ways that they, they, they uh, validate that is that if you, that, that the question is, how do we know there's 613 commandments in the Torah, right? So they say that if you take the gematri of the word Torah, that's 611. And then God spoke the first two commandments. So that's 613. So that's how they, that's, that's the support for the opinion that God spoke the first two commandments. Then there's another opinion that God just said the word anochi. That's the first word of the, of the Ten Commandments. Anochi means I am, I exist. That's all Hashem had to say. Just I am. And that, wow, just everything just, you know, lit on fire, right? But Reb Shlomo said that, that there's an even deeper like, opinion from the Kabbalists 
who say, now remember, the Anochi begins with the letter Aleph. Aleph is silent. That what did God say at Mount Sinai? God pronounced the letter Aleph. But Aleph has no sound. <laughs> so how do you pronounce the soundless? Right? So that's, again, that's another one you can think about for the rest of your life, you know? It's, it's so deep, you know? So, so that's just another, another amazing aspect of this experiential thing that happened. All right, I'll just wrap it up with a story. One of my favorite stories. I'm sure you've heard it, but as Rip Shlomo would say, it's always good to hear again. So um, I was in the old city in Yerushalayim, and uh, I, I took a, uh, some classes with Rabbi David Aaron, uh, who is teaching a program called Israelite, which is, uh, it's spelled I-S-R-A-L-I-G-H-T. So that's, um, it's a program I'd, I'd recommend to anyone. It's, it's a beautiful program and uh, a great introductory program. Um, and very philosophical and very beautiful. But it's Israelite. Israelite is actually a uh, Christian missionary program. So you have to, if you want to go to uh, this place, you have to spell it I-S-R-A-L-I-G-H-T. So, so Israelite. So, so I had been learning, you know, a little bit before I went to the program. Other people maybe were more beginners. So I, uh, I show up the first day of class, and the very first thing that... Uh, Rabbi Aaron says, he says, okay, what's the Torah? So someone raises their hand and says, it's a book of history. So he writes down, he says, very good. He writes down on the blackboard, book of history. Someone else raises their hand and says, it's a book of laws. He goes, very good. You know, he says, he writes down book of laws. Then I raise my hand. He says, go ahead. And I said, it's the infinite compressed into the finite. And he said, okay, let's hold off on that for a moment. (laughs) So, so, So this is what the Torah is. This is... This is, the, this is the incredible privilege. This is the incredible privilege that we have, you know? It's like, you know, there's so many people who, like, they're, they're, they, they mean well. They, they really mean well. But they're like, you know something? Unless I can tell you that it's right, unless, you know, I fully understand and I can tell you that it's right, then, then no. I'm the final authority in the world, and, you know, if I don't get it, well, you know, can you tell me exactly how your computer works? No, but you use it? I use it. Can you tell me exactly how this medicine that you're taking works? No, I can't tell you. But you use it, right? Yeah, I use it. So, somehow there's a bit of a disconnect. See, the Torah, Torah, it, it's, 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 it's everything. It's everything. It's, it's, again, it's in book form. But don't, don't fool yourself and think it's a book. It's the infinite compressed into the finite. And, and if we want to experience it in a real way, in a real way, we have to be able to tap into that experiential aspect of the universe, which allows us to take a holistic approach of our own humanity and bring it to a place of truth. We have to be we have to be enlightened by our mind, but we can't be crippled by our minds. We have to use our minds, but we also have to be very realistic that we're one aspect of creation 
And that creation itself, the universe itself, is so much larger than us. And this actually is a tremendous blessing. This is a, this is a blessing because you're able to let go on some level, but not to let go to quit. This letting go is a letting go that's dropping baggage, which is preventing you from actually getting to a truer, higher place, you know? And, um, and the more you think about it, the more you think about it, once you're led on this path, this divine path, the more it actually makes sense. And, um, and I know that my life has been completely transformed by Torah for the good, and um, I just, uh, I can't imagine a better way of spending my life than to be able to just delve in its passages and its mysteries just for, for the rest of my days. And I just, I bless, I bless all of us that we should have that experience where we're really touched and where our hearts open up and that if we've been touched, that we should get touched again, <laughs> you know, because who doesn't need a refresher course in how great God is? Okay. Yeah.